welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name's Oscar. My name's David. And this week, we're coming at you with the second of our draft episodes, getting ready for the eventual big day, or I guess big days, big weekend uh, that, that are upcoming, the NFL draft. And this is going to be our second week where we're exploring a couple of questions. And this week, we've got a guest on in the long tradition of screwing up names. I look forward to screwing up. Steve Palat, Pal- can't even do it, dude. Yep. Palaz- Palazzolo. Palazzolo. There you go. That's it. That's the one. Palazzolo. Pal- Pretty, well, I'm does like he do 99% it like nine percent sure? But does he do it like Italian, like Palazzolo, or is it like Palazzolo, or like I? I mean, we could, we could, we could debate this all day. But instead, I'm pretty sure there's like a right answer. I mean, we'll ask him. I've heard yeah. him say it before. I'm just like, you know, names are still. Yeah, names. Names are hard. That's uh, not what we do well here. No, you know what we do uh, is apparently we grow majestic beards, and you can't see David right now, but he has one hell of a majestic beard, beard and beard, as a matter of fact. Uh, I don't know if the beard is as majestic, but um, yeah, they're both here. They're both in the room um, near my face most of the time. Yes, correct, Um, at at alternating cadences. Uh, It's incredible. Like I haven't been able to like grow out any sort of hair above my neck basically because of um you know army bullshit before so pretty much just kind of let it go since i got done with that yeah and i mean really seeing david with no eyebrows was difficult the army was mean (laughs) the army was mean uh but let's hit you with the rundown not a ton of stories of course there's one big notable story which we'll get to here at the very top of the rundown before we get to our interview with steve and that's going to be that tremaine brock is no longer a member of the San Francisco 49ers. He was released pretty quickly after being arrested for a domestic violence charge. Fun fact, Tremaine Brock was one of the first players ever on the Better Rivals podcast. That's right. I forgot about that. Man, that was a long time ago. That was a very, very long time ago. We had no clue what the hell we were doing. Still don't know that we do right now. But How yeah, long had he, he was, been in the league at that point. Was he like he a, was a rookie? Yeah. He was an undrafted rookie out of like Bellhaven or something like that. And it was a pretty good story. Um, and we reached out and he was like, yeah, I'll jump on. And, and he came on and we talked a bit about playing nickel because he was being rumored to potentially play nickel. And we talked a lot about the two way go. And, and yeah, it was it was an interesting. Oh, OK. A couple uh, years. That was, he was he would he was three years in at that point. So he was a undrafted guy in 2010. So. 2012 so was been, first year yeah. of the uh, of the podcast. So, yeah. Yep. Yep. All yeah, right. So nuts. there you go. So the, the question that I got for you, David, is, is this a precedent setting move? Is, is this effectively the Lynch doctrine where it's like no longer are we going to let due process kind of happen, which is what Jim Harbaugh said. But instead, we're just going to, you know, straight up buy Felicia you and all of a sudden one day to the next uh, you gone. I mean, they certainly acted more swiftly than what we've seen from this team with these incidents in the past. Right. Um, I mean, Kyle Shanahan stopped short of saying that, you know, his his quote was, I don't really look at any absolutes. I think every situation is its own situation. And, um, you know, to a degree, as we've talked about, uh, unfortunately, we've had a lot of these incidents to kind of cover over the last few years. And um, you know, we, we do think it's, you know, important to, to try to get as much information as possible and not necessarily, uh, rush to immediate judgment, but obviously they felt like that enough to move. And, and honestly, I, I would rather lean this direction, right? If I'm going to make a rash decision, I guess, uh, on a topic like this, I would rather lean this way 
than than maybe giving too much leeway for these type of incidents. Yeah, I think the the decoding of the coach speak is really every situation is its own situation. And it largely depends on a whether the player is talented or b whether <laughs> there's a video. If you if you're yeah. untalented and or there's a video. Yeah, you're you're done. And and the next question really is what where does that leave the 49ers at cornerback? Because while Tremaine Brock had been around for a while and he had had ups and downs, he had one, you know, above average season where he was able to kind of play all on the sideline and he wasn't miscast as a slot corner. But even last year, despite the fact that he started, um, he kind of had up and down plays, right, where he didn't give up a lot. But when he gave up a lot, he gave up, well, a lot. Yeah. He was beat yeah. deep. And it, it averaged him out to kind of like, again, a, a little above average kind of grade if you look at his overall grade on PFF. So it's not like the team lost a whole hell of a lot, especially considering he was entering the final year of his contract anyway, probably wasn't going to be brought around again unless he signed a really, really palatable deal. But it's free agency. I mean, with the cap increase, he probably would have gotten like $67 million from like the Jaguars <laughs> or something. So where, where does that leave the team now with a roster that includes, you know, Jimmy Ward, depending on the position switch, Keith Reeser, Richard Robinson, Dante Johnson, Chris Davis, Kawan Williams, Ja'Cory Shepard, Will Redman, and all-name team, Prince Charles Awara, uh, who we might get to see a bit more of this year. Uh, I mean, that's the, the kind of cornerback roster, but where does it leave the cupboard in terms of talent? So I don't think it really alters much, um, you know, in terms of like a team building perspective, right? Does this change their plans significantly, whether that be with the draft or or kind of what they had planned in the next two, three years at that position? Like, um, you know, you mentioned he's entering the final year of his contract anyway. And, and I think when you factor in the scheme switch and then also um, just the fact that, you know, I don't know that he's been, you know, the sort of, uh, you know, top tier guy that you would really look to build around with a new regime, right? It's like, okay, yes, if he needs to be a starter for this year while we look to get our guys in there and guys that we think, um, you know, fit this system a little bit better, you can probably do worse than Tremaine Brock. But um, yeah, I, I don't think it should really affect things. I mean, cornerback should have been a priority for them anyway in the draft. You, you look at this draft class and, you know, this is something that we're going to talk about uh, in the next draft episode, which is really on the defensive side of the ball. Uh, th this is a stacked cornerback class. You know, this is something and there there are quite a few guys who um, profile very well for what they are, are likely to be looking for at that position. So I think that was something that should have been a priority for them anyway. Um, and, and I think it gives an opportunity, you know, for some of these guys that we've wanted to see maybe get a little bit more playing time. Right. We we do want to see Dante Johnson maybe, you know, finally get That's an opportunity, exactly. right? That's like, exactly who I circled on the list. Um, and, and, you know, I don't know that this really would have affected snaps be it for, for Will Redman, but you have him down there who obviously was, you know, missed all of last year with with injury. And, um, you know, you want to see what you have in him. So uh, and then obviously, like you mentioned, uh, with the ward potential switch to free safety, that kind of uh, opens up some more snaps at corner, you know, potentially there. So. I think, again, we, we've talked about they're, they're not going to be good this year in, in all likelihood. So you, you want to see the guys that are under contract. You know, what do you have in them? Are, are there any pieces here that maybe were miscast in the previous scheme that are going to fit better with what we do? And, and that way you can better identify what you need going forward. I think Dante Johnson is one of those players that maybe suffered from the change in regime. Because if you think of how he played under Jim Harbaugh and then uh, under Jim Tomsula, he actually played pretty well. He was a player who he's another one of those big framed, long armed players that it can hold up well in press uh, or on jams and is, is good on the sidelines. 
And for whatever reason, he just couldn't crack past Keith Reeser. But in limited play with Tom Sula and with Harbaugh, he played really well. He was playing some good ball. And so I'm actually excited to see what this regime can do because I do think this system fits someone like a Dante Johnson much better than Mangini's system uh, or Jim O'Neill's system. So I do think this is another one of those players that has shown flashes and in the right system can succeed. And now the path seems to be clearing for him to get a little bit more playing time. I think we're probably going to end up drafting a cornerback at some point. So depending on how high we draft that cornerback, uh, they might into some of that. They might eat into some of that playing time. So that's definitely someone I'd like to see. I'd like to see Will Redmond because haven't seen him a whole hell of a lot. Uh, and, and so th- there's some players I think that when you're looking for a young team that you want to get some tape on some guys, you know, this could be it, it sucks because it's unfortunate that it happened to, you know, a, a human being who, you know, potentially or allegedly beat up another human being that was not of the same gender, which sucks. But I think if you're looking at the silver lining of it all, uh, it, it does clear a path for the young players to get some playing time. Yeah, and that may, you know, not work out well. You know, we've seen the last couple of years what that looks like. You know, we, we've been talking about um, for, I think, two years now how everybody's like, oh, man, if you give these these young guys an opportunity, you know, they're going to they're, they're talented. They're going to be able to to step in and play well. And it doesn't always work out that way. But at least, you know, right, if you can get those guys on the field, get them some playing time. And, you know, it turns out Dante Johnson and expanded roles terrible. Then, well, at least, you know, and, you know, you can plan appropriately and, and kind of. Uh, look to address that going forward but yeah it, it, it'll be i think from a football standpoint um kind of better to to go ahead and just part ways now as opposed to wait until next offseason anyway other big story in 49ers land is that john lynch said the number two pick we're taking calls we're open for business uh and in other news water is wet <laughs> uh, because that's, I mean, that's what you do. We're open for business, right? And the corollary story here is that the Browns don't have their mind made up at number one, and they don't know if they're going to take, you know, Mitchell, don't call me Mitch Trubisky. They don't know if they're going to take Miles Garrett. I, if they go full Cleveland Browns, I will laugh so hard. I may pee myself a little bit. I might tinkle just a bit out of the sheer, just complete factory of sadness that will have to devolve in Cleveland for them to end up drafting someone like Mitch Trubisky number one overall. I, I want Miles Garrett, and I want that to happen. I personally think it's a smokescreen, but if it is a smokescreen, David, why are they smokescreening? What, what do they have to gain from putting out the rumor that they may not go Miles Garrett number one? Um, I, I think it's, you know, the, the only, I think, logical place you could take it is that, it, that they're entertaining the idea of, you know, doing what the Browns have done under this regime and moving down, right? They, they want to try to, uh, potentially, you know, if there's somebody that's behind San Francisco and uh, is looking to get a quarterback and, you know, Trubisky is their guy or whoever it may be, like, you know, they want to get up there and, and, and force a move up to that number one pick to have to get that guy. So um, I, I don't know that I buy that. I, I You know, they're they're picking at 12 and, you know, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to to move back out of that spot, I think, for them, especially when you have someone like a Miles Garrett who is, really the only you know talent i think at the top of this draft that that everybody mostly agrees on it's like yeah this is a you know an an elite prospect at a premier position like this is the guy that you go with number one overall and that doesn't make him a sure thing necessarily you know we know that that's not really a a thing that exists in the draft but he's about as close as this draft has to it so it, it would be strange i mean i i am very much 
not trying to like I'm pretending that every time I hear one of those rumors, it's just like in one ear out the other. I don't want to entertain this idea. I'm not getting my hopes up that Miles Garrett's coming to San Francisco because obviously that would be, you know, kind of a, a, a perfect pick for them. So, you know, they're they're looking for a Leo. He's by far the best one. And uh, it, it would be pretty exciting, like if they decided to go another direction, uh, you know, if Cleveland did at the top. Well, I read an interesting tweet from Tim Kawakami talking about how John Lynch made a big deal out of stopping the leaks coming out of Santa Clara. And he made Jed York obviously stay secret about John Lynch's candidacy. And now all of a sudden, the Niners are pretty much silent, except for a couple of reports that are coming out. And they're I think coming those, from Lynch. That's Lynch yeah. is like, hey, yeah, well, we're open for business for trade. Um, and I yeah, think we're going to do this. We're going to do that. So, yeah. And to me, that's the most interesting thing is that if if I'm if I'm hearing anything about the 49ers, that's not coming directly from Lynch. I'm immediately thinking planted story. It's bullshit because that's that's the only reason things are leaking right now is because they effectively want them to. And every every front office does it. Every front office will leak a story to say like, oh, we we really we're really high on this guy just so that they can drum up interest, get a trade, do something. Um, that's not be, uncommon you know, in the NFL. It could be agents as well. You know, who knows if this is something that uh, agents for one of these prospects is trying to, you know, oversell and get a little hype building. You know, I, I don't know. You, you, you always have to think of who can gain who the benefits. Most, yeah. From from that sort of thing. I don't know that. The Browns, you know, obviously have a lot to gain by making it sound like they're dysfunctional and their coaching staff wants one thing and their front office wants another. Like that doesn't necessarily uh, make a lot of sense to leak out there. But obviously, you never know with these games. Yeah, I just think it's it's definitely a new era in 49er land with John Lynch where we're getting the actual story as or as close as we can to the story from the GM. Uh, and, and we're not, and we're not trusting the leaks because there's no leaking. (laughs) It's just, it's a weird world, man. Up is down, left is right. Dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. Every once Uh, in a while too, he says some things that you're just like, whoa, they, teams don't usually give that information out. Like, you don't usually hear them say that. Like I was reading, uh, part of the transcript from the Adam Schefter interview that he did on, on Adam's podcast. And, uh, there was a a point in there where, oh man, I forget which signing it was. He was talking about one of the players they signed in free agency, and he was like, yeah, this team and this team and this team were all interested and in, in put in offers, and, uh, you know, we ended... Oh, it was Earl Mitchell. Um, and he was like... Oh, okay. Yeah, these three teams, um, you know, all were interested in, in trying to get him, and we ended up getting him, and that set the stage for our free agency and blah, blah, blah. And it was just like, whoa, wait, what was that part? Like... You don't it's not often you hear a general manager start talking about other teams interested in players that they ultimately got like that was just kind of a strange thing to hear. I wonder if that's because of his inexperience as a GM. He just doesn't know what he's not supposed to say. So he gets out there and he's just like, yeah, like I don't like I don't care. I don't care that other people know that these three teams were in. We won. We got the guy. Right. Like what? what, What's this false sense of silence? (laughs) I think it's it's kind of it's it's recruiting, man. It's like he's uh, he he wants to, to get out there that like, hey, look, these other teams were interested and this guy still chose to come to us. Right. It, yeah. It's I think it's a total recruiting move. No helicopter needed in this case. 
so let's get to the, the, I mean, really the final story, and we're not going to spend more than about four breaths on it, is that there's a lot of workouts and local pro days coming up. And, and you can check Niners Nation for all those details in case you're super interested on who's coming, who's not coming, uh, whether or not they wore gloves, didn't wore gloves, uh, or all the things that people care about. Uh, so definitely keep up to date on Niners Nation for all of those details. Uh, but let's shift focus and let's talk a little bit about what we want to cover over the next couple of episodes. We've got uh, two more left before really we kind of wrap everything up and, and talk about what our recommendations would be for the draft. And we set out to answer a couple of questions between now and the draft. And, and if you didn't listen to last week's podcast, I would definitely recommend going back and listening to it. The interview with Matt Waldman was great. We talked about non-quarterback skill positions. And so this week, we're going to talk about uh, quarterbacks specifically as a skill position. And really, the questions that we wanted to investigate were, one, assuming the 49ers stay at number two, what's the best non-Miles Garrett direction for them to go? We're just kind of, again, we're existing in a world that Miles Garrett gets drafted first overall. In the world in which Miles Garrett does not get drafted overall, you freaking put that card up there and you jump over the table before the commissioner says, Mitch, um, you get it up there. You do it. Don't pull a Minnesota. Um, so if things go as expected and Miles Garrett goes number one, what the hell do we do? And then number two, should the 49ers be looking to move out of number two? And if so, what sort of reasonable compensation could we expect? Number three, should the 49ers be looking for a quarterback of the future in this draft? Number four, what are the strengths and weaknesses of this draft class? And based on those strengths and weaknesses, what positions should we target and at which points in the draft should we target them? And then lastly, who the hell are our draft crushes? So this podcast is really going to hit head on that third question. Should the 49ers be looking for a quarterback of the future in this draft? We're going to hit the quarterback class hard. We're going to talk about the guys at the top. We're going to talk a little bit about the guys at the bottom. And to do that, we're going to bring on Steve Palaz... Oh, I can't even do it, dude. I can't Palazzolo. do it. Steve Palazzolo. I can't... See, the problem is I'm looking at the name. I, if I don't look at it and I just go, Steve Palazzolo, I think I can do it. <laughs> but we're going to bring on Steve Palazzolo from Pro Football Focus to talk a bit more about the quarterback class. And really quickly, a PSA... Near the end of the interview with Steve, we, he actually gives us a call to action. And this is the first time we've ever done this where we put the call to action at the beginning. But the call to action this week is hot takes, where you send your hot takes to Steve and his Twitter handles at PFF Steve. So definitely worth listening to the end of the interview. But if you tune out here, definitely just send a hot take, any hot take to at PFF Steve. We want to flood his feed with all of the might of better rivals. So make sure you get your hot takes out there. And now, the interview. All right, Steve Palazzolo, welcome to the Better Rivals podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. And man, I'm two for two on that name. I'm, I'm practicing. I'm taking mental reps. Uh, it's like virtual reality, really, like a quarterback. Just making Sounds sure you smooth. get it. Yeah, Sounds exactly. Smooth. Exactly. I'm, despite the fact that I'm like sweating bullets, making sure I don't mess it up. <laughs> Uh, but Steve, thanks for coming on. And, and you know, for, for those that don't know your work for Pro Football Focus, uh, I'd love for you to tell us a bit about how you started with the company and, and your history and why it is that you've taken to, to analyzing quarterbacks. Yeah, so I was uh, a former minor league pitcher, finished my career in 2011 and uh, smoothly transitioned into the football world. I was a big fan of Pro Football Focus at the time, trying to figure out what I was going to do and uh, reached out to them, asked if they needed help. I was always a uh, a big football guy on the side, even though I was playing uh, playing baseball, and uh, you know they did need help at the time. I was a 
part-timer for one year in 2011. The company was pretty small at the time. I became the fifth full-time employee of the company in 2012. And then fast forward to now, I'm a senior analyst. We grade and analyze every single player on every play, not only in the NFL, but now in college. And all, almost all 32 t NFL teams now using our, our our data, our information, our grades, and uh, over 20 NF uh, college teams now using that information. And then everything that we do uh, you know, for, for fans with our draft information, with our regular NFL grades and everything. And uh, along the way, I've, I've taken to quarterbacks as a former thrower of objects. I've, I've taken to the quarterback position, studied that uh, a little bit more than other positions and always trying to find, I think, better ways of, of evaluating guys and, you know, be, ways that go beyond the stats and really identifying those guys that, uh, that truly performed well, performed poorly, even if the stats don't always back it up. I think uh, I think it was Chris Collinsworth who said on the Monday Morning Quarterback podcast that something like 26 or 28 of the NFL teams use Pro Football Focus data, which is I think pretty phenomenal, all things considered. Um, it really is, you know, it's it's kind of a big deal for lack of a better phrase. Um, so that's that's pretty legit. And it's really awesome. Um, now yeah, it's, been, it's been fun to see. Yeah, and and we're gonna ask you this, and it's gonna color, of course, everything that you say from here on out. But you said you were a big NFL guy even when you were playing baseball. Who, do you have a favorite team um, or was there a team that you follow that you were like, yes, I'm a fan of theirs and or now has it kind of melted away as you look at large data sets and, and watch tons of football? Well, I'm an unbiased analyst, you know, as far as an analysis goes, but I did grow up in New England and, uh, you know, started out. I was a, I was actually a Jaguars fan back in the day. Big Mark Brunel. Oh, man. Mid 90s Jaguars fan. I tried to follow them for a while and. Um, have enjoyed watching the Patriots play through the years, but you know now it's just uh, you know unbiased analyst as as much as I can be. You know we don't we're not really trying to play favorites, but certainly uh, every single PFF analyst had a team at some point. Yeah, exactly. We're we're not of the opinion that that you just because you are a fan or were a fan that you are necessarily unbiased. Um, we we try to take that same approach even with the team that we know and love, yeah, uh, which isn't always popular. But you know what? Damn it, it's right. Um, so. <laughs> Uh, I'd love to hear a bit about some of the data that, that PFF ha has collected and, and if there's really anything you've been able to identify in the data that can help you better project college quarterbacks to the NFL. You know, I'm thinking about data points like the one that Daniel Jeremiah from the NFL Network likes to mention a lot where, you know, if you're a senior and you have under 60% completion, uh, you generally does not bode well for the NFL. I think Trevor Simeon is one of the quarterbacks and, and there's maybe one other in the NFL who's starting that's, that's kind of met that low limbo bar. Are there, are there any bits of data that you've been able to find like that that can help project college quarterbacks to the NFL? Yeah, it's tough because we only have the three years of college data. I mean, we could easily go back and look at completion percentages and some basic stats, but um, only three years of the college data, and we're still a little behind in even just identifying our NFL data and which parts are, are, are most valuable. But one thing I found interesting last year, we went back and uh, rewatched, you know, we already graded these guys every single play, but we rewatched every quarterback, every single throw in the draft class last year, and we charted each one for for ball location, for actual accuracy. So did you hit a guy in stride? Did you put it in between the numbers? Did you put it on the back hip, which are all catchable passes, but of varying degrees of accuracy? And the one thing that stood out when we went back retroactively and looked at it, Dak Prescott, of course, was coming off that outstanding rookie season. He wasn't the best overall from an accuracy standpoint, but from uh, in one very specific part of it, which was if, if his receiver was deemed to have a step or two of separation, he was the most accurate. And it wasn't even close. Most accurate in the entire class. 
And, you know, in throwing into tight coverage, he was not nearly as accurate. And I just found that interesting that he excelled in one very specific area. And then you go to the NFL and he actually had a lot more open receivers than he had at Mississippi State and he he performed extremely well. So that was just one data point that in this small sample size, I went back and said, "Hmm, you know, maybe there's something there. And then looking at this draft class through that same lens, there's actually still nobody in his league from a percentage and accuracy standpoint. But Mitchell Trubisky is the top one in the class right now. Uh, but I just found it interesting that Dak, you know, everybody's saying, what did we miss on Dak? What did we, what did we miss on Dak? And it's, I just think it's interesting that that may have been one of the things that we missed as part of the entire package. So kind of in a similar vein, I think, in, in terms of projecting these college quarterbacks, um, into the NFL and, and all of the factors that kind of go into that. I'm, I'm curious to hear how much do you really buy into the argument that you hear all the time, which is, you know, these these damn gimmicky college offenses, these spread offenses are, are really hurting college quarterbacks because they're not doing the same things that they're going to be asked to do in, in NFL offenses. How much of a factor do you really think that is? When, when you're trying to watch these guys transition from college to the NFL and be successful? I, I actually think it's a factor. You know, I, I, I think it just makes it more challenging. You look at a guy like Jared Goff, who I still like. I think, I think he'll be okay. Um, I always struggled with his ceiling, per se, but I, I do think he'll eventually be okay. But you look at his transition from an air raid system to an NFL system, and you're just reading the field differently. You just have different cues. How do you get from one to two to three? What are you reading? How are you reading it? And there is something to college offenses simplifying things so much. You're going to hear it about Deshaun Watson this year. Does he go from progression one to two to three? Does he just go from one to running? Does he go one to two to taking off in the pocket? I think there's a lot of that to his game that is questionable. And the same thing with Goff. He's just learning how to read the field differently than he did in the air raid system, I think the thing that's encouraging and, and all, all I think it does is it slows development. It's not that a guy can't do it, but with a guy like Goff, you know, he was reading the field one way, has to do it a different way in the NFL. But to me, he showed mastery of that air raid system. He showed mastery of a system, which tells me, all right, if you give him time, he'll be able to master whatever this system the Rams are going to throw at him now with their their new system. So that's what that's how I kind of view it. There's a there is a learning curve. There is uh, there are some differences. I think it's still on the NFL to try to simplify things a little bit and make it easier on these guys. We've seen, you know, the good there there are some good offensive coordinators who have taken guys like Robert Griffin the third. He comes in and the Shanahan's adjusted to him extremely well in 2012. Well, you've uh, also got Newton. Bill Belichick and and the Earnhardt Perkins system. I mean, you they they have a bevy of one word calls that you know indicate a concept, and you know it'll be levels or ghost tosser or whatever the case may be. And all of a sudden, it's one word. Everyone knows what they're doing, and the Patriots do pretty well. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And then those those 2003 and 2004 Patriots playbooks that are floating around the internet, they're awesome to be able to uh, to be able to to check out ghost tosser and all those plays, but. Uh, you know, they've taken Jimmy Garoppolo, who basically played in a Baylor-ish type system. And the Baylor system, I think that's the hardest one to transition to in the NFL. They just say, go, there's man coverage, throw a deep ball. And the, the receivers on the other side aren't even going to run routes. You're not even going to try to read the field. You're just going to find man coverage and throw a deep ball like it's Madden. So um, there is a big learning curve. And I think the NFL just has to find a better way to accelerate it. So I think transitioning, you know, some of that, that more general talk and, and looking at what uh, you know, we can we can look for in these quarterbacks to, to help transition. 
looking at the class at a whole as a whole this 2017 draft class uh like you mentioned you have three years now of pff college data um and, and a chance to kind of compare now this class to some of those previous ones and 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 get an idea of to the the caliber of class that we're looking at here not necessarily you know at the top just top to bottom how do you think that this one stacks up to what we had uh you know over the past three years I'd say it's not as it's probably the weakest uh, at the top of the last couple, and that's me still believing in Goff and, and believing in Carson Wentz at the top of last year's. Um, it's not as deep as last year's because I think you could go, you could get into the Kevin Hogan's and of course what we thought the Dak Prescotts were, um, the Jeff Driscolls, and say that those guys are, you know, probably going to make an NFL roster even if you don't love them. I don't think there's as many guys in this class as last year that are going to make an NFL roster. So I think last year's was probably the deepest 2014 uh, first year of data, Marcus Mariota and Jameis Winston, clearly the best at the top as far as uh, what we've seen from those guys. So I think it's just a little in between 2014 and 15 uh, as far as where it stacks up. Cause I think you've got, you have any one of these four top guys, maybe five top guys, I think that come out and, uh, you know, if, if, if you told me any of, them, any of them were having the best career three or four years down the road, I'd, I'd say they're, they, they're probably, they probably ended up in the best situation. I think a lot of these QBs this year, it's going to be very situation-driven, maybe even more than ever. You had to bring up Jeff Driscoll, didn't you? You had to kick us where it hurts. That's... <laughs> <laughs> you know, there seems to be guys every year. This year, it's Josh Dobbs. There's like a guy every year that I... If you told me their sophomore or junior year that I'd even be talking about them as NFL prospects, I'd think you were crazy. And then they kind of do enough senior year to say, okay, maybe. That's my Josh Dobbs this year. That that was Jeff Driscoll last year. Like They made enough strides to kind of make an NFL roster, but the reality is, eh, probably shouldn't have been. Yeah, it's that's you know he was the future man. He was the future at one point, but now, no. now, I think we're in a better place now. <laughs> yes, I, I don't think he's... I don't think he's ever been the future. <laughs> yeah. So Trubisky and Watson are your QB1 and QB2 on the PFF big board right now. And, and they really occupy similar territory in the overall rankings there. Uh, you got your draft guide, which, by the way, is awesome. Um, the, you've got you. an overall ranking, uh, and they are at 10 and 13, respectively. So Mitch Trubisky, number one QB, but 10th overall. Deshaun Watson, second QB, 13th overall. How do you reconcile the really the sample size difference between the two? When you look at Trubisky, you've got 574 graded pass attempts. Watson has almost double that at 1212. Um, you know he had 580 in 2016 alone. So when, when you're comparing the two, when you're looking at projections, is there something to the idea that Deshaun Watson's production over you know effectively you know freshman starter all the way through and national championship at Alabama compared to Trubisky, who is you know kind of one year maybe? Does that factor into the evaluation? And if so, how do you reconcile that sample size difference? Yeah, it's the t it's tough, but I think you know there's a certain element of as much as we're production based, we still have to go to the how and and you know how did they get to where they are? And I think when you watch Watson's game, he is very good pre-snap. He's very good at knowing where the where to go with the ball uh, before the snap. But I think you also saw teams almost um, lulling him into some some poor decisions last year because of that it's you know it's like every time he sees off coverage boom clemson's throwing a quick out teams would kind of bait him into uh you know dropping corners into passing lanes and stuff so i think the more you saw watson the more you see his reliance i think on pre-snap work and not 
going through reads, going through progressions. And, and again, this comes down to, I don't know that he can't do it or that Clemson's not asking him to do it. He just doesn't do it. And it, to do it at the next level is going to take some time. So I think there's a little bit of that projection to Watson's game. Um, I think he can make all the necessary throws. I know they've got these radar gun combine numbers that come out that make it seem like he's got a little league arm, but I, I don't see a major issue with Watson's arm. Um, it's more this, it's more pocket presence and his ability to go from one to two to three. Whereas Trubisky, even in that small sample size, he wasn't, he didn't, it wasn't a perfect season by any means, but he showed even more, I think in that department, the ability to get to his second, third read a little bit smoother maneuvered around the pocket a little bit better than Watson. And I think his short area accuracy is excellent. So again, I don't know if Trubisky's upside is, is through the roof or anything, but um, I just think he does a few more NFL quarterbacking type things than Watson, even with that smaller sample size that we've seen. Now for Deshaun Watson in, in the scattering report forum, you say he's the best glance route thrower in the class. What, what does that mean when you're a glance route thrower? That's our boy, uh, Zach Robinson, former NFL quarterback. He did a lot of the, the work breaking these guys down. And uh, the glance route's essentially that seam or post when it's, um, you know, that Troy Aikman to Michael Irvin, uh, the bang okay. eight, if bang you want to call it. Yeah. It's, it's that top, you know, top of the drop and then boom, getting it out. So Watson works the seams extremely well, also throws with great touch down the field. So I think those those two things, again, when he's pre-snap, when he, when he sees something pre-snap and he gets it post-snap, he can throw in rhythm and he can make all the necessary throws and he's very good. It's a very kind of Andy Dalton-ish uh, to Watson's game. When you give him what he wants, he can make all the necessary throws. It's when you kind of uh, mess with him a little bit post-snap and, and trust in that ability to get to one to two to, th uh, one to two to three. Now, of course, the 49ers fans want to know, essentially, should we be taking, should we be seriously considering one of these guys at number two overall? And, you know, you, you mentioned earlier that this class really you don't feel as it's good at the top. And um, it reminded me of something that you talked about a couple months ago, actually, with uh, one of the PFF draft dailies, which was essentially if you're willing to take a quarterback in the middle of the first round, and, and that's the sort of grade that you have on this guy, you know, should you feel comfortable taking him with one of the top few few picks? So, you know, it's it's kind of where do you draw that line between the, the the very, very significant positional value of quarterback and then the risk of missing out on on a potential elite talent at another position. Because I think, um, you know, 2011 was really kind of a fascinating test case for that. Right. You, you know, once you get if you kind of leave out Cam Newton, it was your, your quarterbacks were Jake Locker, Blaine Gabbert, Christian Ponder, all going in that kind of Rough. eight to 12 range. <laughs> and and it's just terrible looking at it now. And, and you look at the guys that went even just after Locker, right? So you had uh, Tyron Smith, J.J. Watt, Robert Quinn all went after Locker did. And then you look at the teams in, in that two to, to eight range, I believe, two to seven range um, that, that opted to pass on one of those guys were, were really rewarded. You know, you had Von Miller, Darius, A.J. Green, Patrick Peterson, Julio Jones, Alden Smith all go right in that range there. So for for you, where do you draw that line between positional value of quarterback and and you know the potential risk of missing out on somebody like that in another position? So I, it's a great question, and it's one that I don't have a clean answer for, other than it's a case by case basis. You know, when you start to go through these mock drafts, and I always do my mock drafts if as as if I am the general manager, I think. But I but as I'm going through, you start to see why Jake Locker picks happen and Christian Ponder picks happen because. The human element here is, man, I don't have a quarterback. 
this guy might be a quarterback, he's going to give me a better shot to keep my job. Uh, you, you start to see that human element. Um, and then when, so if everybody was in a perfect world, which is you're Bill Belichick and you know, you know, you've got your job till you're, till you retire or the 49ers case, yeah. you know, you're John Lynch and you're Kyle Shanahan who basically signed lifetime contracts for the, <laughs> uh, you know, in, in NFL terms. Yep. Checks out. They can be, they can be patients now. They don't have to force a pick because if you don't get the guy this year, chances are with the roster you have, there'll be an opportunity next year. And I'm not one of those that say, well, just go next year's class. You've got Josh Rosen and Sam Darnold and Lamar Jackson. But if you show patience and you just trust your evaluations, uh, then I think you say, okay, this quarterback is worth a middle of the first round pick. This guy's worth a top end of the first round pick. If you trust your evaluations and you trust the long-term process, then I think you slot them in based off where you're drafting and you just make the smart move. But I, all I'll say is I'll under, I understand why people say, Hey, I have Brian Hoyer. My, 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 you know, I, I'm going to go, or if I'm the bears, I have Mike Glennon basically on a one-year deal, or I could take a shot on Mitch Trubisky who could be the guy I can understand where they would debate the two and you're John Fox and you're trying to, and you're Ryan Pace and you're like, Hey, the future could be dependent on this pick, even though it might not be the best long-term strategy. So I understand why it happens in the NFL. I still think best long-term it's best if you do put a specific value on these players and stay true to the board, so to speak. And it's again, it blame Gabbert, Christian Ponder, both 49ers quarterbacks last year, both it's just, it's, just live in 2011. Man, it, man it was, that was 2011, so, man. That's yeah, that that was that was the year apparently. Two guys uh, who should have been third round picks in 2011. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But you know what? Um, America matters and Blaine Gabbard's a real American, all right? We'll so, <laughs> <laughs> get to figure it out. <laughs> so, let's final question I think on on Trubisky, Trubisky Watson and really it's about scheme fit. There's, if there's one thing we've learned this offseason while uh, both David and I have been doing a scouting academy, actually, um, with Dan Hatman, and we, we've learned a lot about scheme fit and how a quarterback and really any player might do well in one scheme and might fail miserably in another. So when, when you think of these two quarterbacks that are kind of your one and two, do any one of them have a clear advantage over the other in terms of a scheme fit for Kyle Shanahan's offense? Yeah, I'd say it's Trubisky. Uh, I don't think, you know, that going back to this whole progression deal, you really have to trust that Shanahan system. You're going to turn you back to the defense. You, you need to come out and be able to read it quickly. If number one's not there, you got to get to number two, number three. I think Trubisky showed a lot more in that area. I don't think Watson has. Uh, it's funny because with the Shanahan system, because they run so much outside zone and then bootleg off of it, everybody just thinks mobility first. The reality is that's like two throws a game, three throws a game that you need to be thrown on the run. So I think mobility is so overrated when you start to say, well, Shanahan, they run bootleg. They need a mobile guy. It's overrated. You don't need a guy. So people would immediately think, well, Watson's more athletic. He must be a better fit. It's such a small percentage of the playbook, in my opinion, that it, it you, you, there's still a point where you need to, you know, it's third and eight, and you got to make a play, and, and you got to trust the offense. So I think Trubisky is a better fit. I think Watson needs to be schemed for a little bit more, you know, uh, uh, at this point, again, he could maybe he could get there, but based off what they've showed, I just think Trubisky is a better fit for what the 49ers and Shanahan wants to do. Well, I mean, you look at what they did with Matt Ryan, and, and I wouldn't call Matt Ryan, uh, you know, um, the prototypical mobile quarterback. 
Definitely uh, and not. yet, and yet, yeah. you still have them running uh, zone reads in the red zone, uh, and you have them running, you know, kind of toss option plays, and, and you're just like, I'm, I'm sorry, what? What are you doing? Um, and, and they they did it with great effect, you know. And so you, you don't need necessarily the traditional, you know, maybe Colin Kaepernick or or kind of mobility in order to succeed with someone like what with Kyle Shanahan. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, it's 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 two or three play actions a game that they get outside the pocket, the zone read stuff. And, and Trubisky is actually a really good athlete anyway. Um, and one of the things I like about him is his footwork. You'll see it every now and again. He'll juke a defender, but in the pocket, his footwork's really good. He maneuvers it, maneuvers the pocket extremely well. So. I look at Trubisky's one year of, of of tape as, you know, he hasn't been exposed yet, but I saw so much on tape that, you know, he only has one year of experience. I look at it as maybe a positive. There, there's still a lot of room to grow there. So th- there's a clear gap between Mahomes and Kaiser on the PFF big board. If, if you look at the, the, the board, it's Mitch Trubisky, Deshaun Watson, and then you got Patrick Mahomes. I don't know if it's Mahomes or if it's Mahomes. Again, my, tra- my, my track record with names is not great. Just Mahomes. Um, it's Mahomes. Okay, perfect. His dad was a major league pitcher. I, my my two degrees of separation was my old teammate was teammates with Patrick Mahomes' dad in the major league. So there you we're go. Basically, former teammates. Mahomes. So Mahomes is is like your Kevin Bacon, is what you're saying. Yes, but only two <laughs> degrees, right? But only two degrees. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so he's you got Mahomes at 23, and then Kaiser at 68. And those are the only ones that you have actual rankings on. So what is it What is it about Mahomes that gives him that sort of advantage in your mind, considering the different types of offenses that they played in? Yeah, it's just the – you would think that the advantage from an offense standpoint would be Kaiser. And Kaiser's such an interesting evaluation because he does a lot of NFL-type quarterback stuff well. I just have major issues with his accuracy. There's some, there's some foot, footwork issues that he needs to iron out, uh, and then that, and then there's a consistency issue with him. The thing about Mahomes is you see that special feel for making plays inside the pocket, outside the pocket, and it is a Johnny Football type of feel. Now that's scary when you say, "Hey, Johnny Football, he didn't make it in the NFL." I really was interested to see what he would have done in the NFL. I don't think he would have been great, but I was interested to see if you know if he kept himself uh, straight off the field, what he could have done. I think with Mahomes. He has a big arm that can make all the throws. He's got this. He's got really good touch. He just makes special throws. Has great feel. The thing about him now is is containing, containing it because that same playmaking ability has him, you know, just chucking balls up into coverage as well. So there's some boom. You know, there's some good and some bad there. But with Mahomes, the thing I'm really intrigued about is the fact that he just quit baseball last year. He used to be splitting his time between baseball and football. And in 2015, we graded him well, but not great. 2016, his first year playing just football, he took a major step forward in our grading. His accuracy, his decision-making was better. Even though he still made those boneheaded decisions, he cut down on them. And I just think there's so much potential. I hate using the word potential, but with Mahomes, you just see a lot of the special. And it's going to take a team that can harness that ability just enough while not losing that natural playmaking that he shows. And so that's where I see with Mahomes. There's still a lot of projection there, but um, he could potentially be a very special player. With Kaiser, you know, he's got when you look at when you look at Kaiser's best plays from a pocket movement standpoint and working through progressions, his best plays look probably as good as any player in this class. There's just major consistency issues. Yeah, I'm a Texas fan. 
I'm a Texas fan, so I saw all of those great plays. Well, Texas in week after one. the Texas game, he was a he was the number one pick in the draft. Everybody's like, "Oh, yeah. this guy's done it all." Yeah, he was making touch throws up the sideline. He's putting it over linebackers in between safeties. He's throwing dig routes on a line twenty yards. He was doing it all, and then you see him against Navy, and he's you know overthrowing five yard <laughs> curls. But that's Kaiser. You don't know what you're gonna get yet, but he's only twenty years old. I want to know how much of this is physical, how much is it, is it of its mental. To be honest, from a grading standpoint, he shouldn't even be in our second round. But I know that he's 20 years old, and I've seen him do it. I've seen him do, do all these NFL things, and it's a matter of, uh, you know, trying to put it all together. So, th- so he's a projection as well. A lot of question marks, but his accuracy is a big question. And that week-to-week consistency, I don't know what I'm going to get out of him. Wasn't great in crunch time. So a lot of questions about Kaiser, but every now and again, you get that Texas game that uh you know he showed what he could do potentially so so what are your thoughts on his his 2015 season compared to what we saw last year you know especially with the major consistency issues i mean you have some out there in 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 draft twitter right i think josh norris has kind of championed uh this idea that uh kaiser in 2015 was the best quarterback play out of anybody in this class is that i guess do you agree with that or, or what was it about him in 2015 that um, was was better than what we saw, or more consistent than what we saw in 2016. Yeah, I like Josh, but I don't agree with his 2015 being that great. Um, I, I think it was the, it was a lot of the same issues. He, I think he was better in 2015 overall, but he also a, a lot of the same issues that I had: accuracy, down to down accuracy, not there; uh, pocket presence, not there. We've charged him with ten. We charged him with ten sacks in 2015. We charged the Notre Dame offensive line with, I think, seven sacks. And, you know, that's what I think is one of the beauties of PFF is quarterback gets sacked. We will assign credit or we'll assign blame to the offensive line. Is it the left tackle? Is it the right tackle? Is it, you know, right tackle, right guard? Or is it the QB for holding the ball too long or losing, forcing his linemen to lose leverage? Kaiser took 10 sacks in 2015 on his own and then nine in 2016. So I think there's... He struggles there. I think he made a lot of bad decisions. You go to the BC game. He just kept throwing the ball. Uh, he just makes bad red zone decisions. Kept throwing the ball into tight coverage in the red zone, making poor decisions. I thought we saw a lot of that throughout the season. Now, every now and again, he'd drop a beautiful deep ball in on Will Fuller. He'd show the big arm, but I still think it was the same level of inconsistency from 2015 and 2016 with Kaiser. If you're talking about the best quarterback in 2015, that was Watson. I think Watson's 2015 was even better than his 2016 from a you know from start to finish and that is one of the things that brought up questions about Watson to me is why did he take a step back and not uh, not dominate the way I expected him to with all of that surrounding talent at Clemson so with Kaiser uh, to me there's not much difference between the two years respectfully Josh <laughs> All right, so we're going to take a a bit of a turn here, and we're going to do something that we like to do with guests that come on every now and again, and we like to do kind of a quick fire round in some way, shape, or form, and the the, the complexion of this specific quick fire is going to be a buy or sell, which I'm sure you're familiar with, right? We'll we'll give you a statement to varying degrees of outlandishness, um, and you tell us whether or not you agree with it, whether you buy it, or whether you disagree, whether you're going to sell it. Uh, So there's only four. It'll be pretty quick. Because uh, we still have some developmental guys to talk about. Uh, one of my favorite potential project guys, uh, n- named by the name or goes by the name of maybe uh, Nathan Peterman, but we'll talk about him in a minute. Uh, so uh, buy or sell, real quick. We'll get through four. Nathan Peterman will be the next Kirk Cousins. Sell, but I like you hesitated. But, well, I, I like a lot of Peterman's game. The more you watch him. 
Uh, I think he's extremely accurate at the intermediate level. He does a lot of good things that I like. And, and I don't love Cousins, but uh, you know, what Cousins has done has been really good. And I don't think I would say – I don't think Peterman will get to that level of Cousins. I think he'll be okay. I think he has a chance to be okay, but not the level that Cousins has gotten to. Do you think Cousins is a good comp for someone like Nathan Peterman? Yeah, it's solid. I, I, Cousins continues to improve. I, 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 I didn't believe in him a ton. Um, I still don't really believe in him as a guy that's going to carry a franchise. You guys are going to trade for him next year, you know? Um, yeah. Don't, don't you I don't say think that, that's Steve. a great don't fit you say to that. just be like, I'm going to take over the 49ers and you're going to build around me, Kirk Cousins. It's, I think he needs to be a part of this uh, the offense that, he's at, that he has at Washington where you have Deshaun Jackson and you have Pierre Garçon and you have Jordan Reed. In that, I think he could facilitate an offense. I don't think he's the guy you want to build around in San Francisco. All right, buy or sell, Deshaun Kaiser pocket presence will overcome his footwork when he gets to the NFL. Uh, sell. And you I, think his uh, footwork is that bad, huh? Yeah. Just footwork plus just overall consistency, uh, consistent accuracy. It's, it, 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 there's a really good, he has a good feel for the pocket. Sometimes, like I mentioned the other, you know, other times he's also taken a lot of sacks. So with him again, it's just, he's flashed the ability to do all these NFL things, but not consistently enough. So I'm selling. All right, Patrick Mahomes and his preference for out-of-structure play makes him a tough sell for Kyle Shanahan. So I'm buying that he makes him a tough sell. Yes, I'm going to buy that it makes him a tough sell. Yeah, that was a poorly worded question on my part. That's my <laughs> B. <laughs> yeah, it's a, I mean, Mahomes, I think, is going to be a tough sell for, for anybody, you know, any quarterback coach that, that wants control and, and wants structure. That's why I said it's going to take a special coach, I think, that can harness him enough while letting him keep that, that magical playmaking brett Favre like playmaking yeah i mean that's that's the hope right is that he ends up peeking out at brett Favre. what's funny is you know who i think he would fit well with is uh seattle yeah that'd be that would be fascinating yeah Uh, all right wilson guy (laughs) yeah well i mean maybe you know backup quarterback is a position right you can can make a career it's not a first round position i don't think yeah (laughs) no it's not but but do we really think that mahomes is gonna go in the first round punters are 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 people but they're not draft picks it's like you know backup quarterbacks (laughs) are a position but they're not a first round position well, the thing I've come around to on Mahomes, I think he's a second round player, but that that some team takes in the later in the first round to get that fifth round, that fifth year option potential yeah. because he yeah. need, he's going to need it if you're going to get the most out of him. All right. And final question on the buy or sell segment. Consistency be damned. Davis Webb will be one of the best three quarterbacks in this class when all said and done. Sell. Man. <laughs> Why is he getting first round hype? That's the question I've got for you too. So let's let's talk about the developmental guys. Yeah, I made most of the the I, t- I try to bring some of the developmental guys into the buy or sell as well because it, you know if the 49ers are not going to pick a quarterback at two and, and we don't really at this point it doesn't seem like that's where we're going and and you think about maybe that that early second round pick if you don't get something in there and the quarterbacks don't fall to you you're really thinking about getting a developmental guy later on in the draft. So, you know, when you think about someone like a Davis Webb, why do you think he's been getting a lot of that first round love? Because he's tall, throws the ball fast. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's really what it is. I tweeted a couple weeks ago, Brogan Roback from Eastern Michigan. Watch this. Next year, he's 6'6". He could throw a deep out. He's going to get first round hype next year at this time. I don't even know how he's going to play next year. He hasn't played like a first rounder. He's going to get first round hype because he's 6'6 and, and throws a deep out once in a while. Uh, Mitch Leidner got first round hype before until people actually watched him play football again. So 
I don't know. That's just kind of where I am with Webb. I don't hate him. I just don't see first round. Just like I didn't hate Mike Glennon, but people started saying first round for him a couple of years ago too. These are third and fourth round guys. With Webb, he's got a big arm. He can make some special throws like any other QB. You just take their 10 to 15 best plays. They look really good. The footwork's all over the place. His accuracy is not great. He did play through a thumb injury last year that I think hurt him from an accuracy standpoint. But even when he was at his best... I don't see a special first-round type of player. I see a guy, a developmental guy that, yes, does need to, um, you know, continue to work at his game, though. By all accounts, he works extremely hard, like ridiculously hard. And they say he's got that that old off-the-field it factor. And, you know, there's there's something to that, at least. So I, th- I think we're both of the, the mind that we're hoping the 49ers kind of choose to wait early on the draft early and, and kind of forego some of those, those top four or five guys at the top there and, and really push that quarterback conversation back to next off season. So it, do you have, I mean, it's a, it's obviously not Davis Webb. Um, it is, who is your favorite sort of day three uh, developmental guy? If they just want to get a, a third quarterback on the roster that Kyle Shanahan might, you know, be able to do something with it. Is there a guy down there that you, you know, that sticks out to you above the others? Well, I just trashed Webb, but he is—I mean, he is one of those guys. <laughs> You're talking day three. That's one of those guys. Peterman, in my mind, is a borderline day three, day two, day three guy. That I think, yeah, sure, I'd love to have Peterman on my roster and see what happens. Um, you know, when I look developmental guys, sometimes I most team most people think big arm because we'll just teach him accuracy. I work the other way and I say, give me accuracy and just you know put him in the system and you know that. You know, accuracy is not something you just figure out all of a sudden. So I look at a guy like Nick Mullins from Southern Miss, I think would have just as good of a shot as a, as a Davis Webb, just coming from the opposite end of the spectrum as a guy that created really well in our system, throws the ball pretty accurately. Give me him. Uh, another guy to keep an eye on, Dane Evans from Tulsa, who actually does have a cannon and can throw the ball accurately every now and again. He just doesn't have any touch. I mean, if you're talking big arm guys, that guy throws the ball hard. I would play around, you know, take a look at him late round so if you're looking for that accurate guy give me nick mullins the big arm developmental guy give me dane evans from tulsa awesome so i think really we're kind of rounding out here with the last couple of questions that we've got for you uh and and this is the opportunity we're going to give you to uh, get take any of the takes that you've got the hot takes off your chest is there anything that you've thought to yourself, man, this, this isn't a necessarily a popular opinion or a common opinion, uh, but it's one that, you know, I just kind of want to get out to the world. What, what, what's the take that's just dying to come out of you like a, a little alien in, in the movie Aliens? Oh, man, you can't just make up hot take. I'm not ready for a hot take. What am you I, can. What am I, uh... That's exactly what a hot take is for. Just make it up. Just be hot like. Hot takes have more thoughts, than, more, uh, more thought to it than you. I mean, do they, though? Do exactly. they? <laughs> I don't know how hot it is. I think a lot of people are down on Leonard Fournette. Um, we're, we let's talk to, about that for a second. Let's you just get, to number three uh, on our running back board, and he could be the four. He could be four. You just you just hit a nerve. Yeah. Okay. So we talked about it last week. So we had Matt Waldman on last week, and we were talking about again system fit for Fournette. He, I, I don't think that he's a zone system fit to begin with. Nope. But but even if you're looking at a gap scheme, you know, you just think about positional value for a running back in general. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about Fournette in the context of the 49ers. I mean, you just told me that you, you knocked him down to three, maybe number four. What is it that you're seeing about his performance? And, and do you see him as a fit for San Francisco? 
Definitely not a fit for San Francisco or Atlanta or any of those outside zone type schemes. Teams that run more inside zone, so it's either inside zone, which he's still not great at, or gap scheme, as you mentioned, so pure power or just that you know that gap man type scheme. So Washington runs a lot of that. Oakland can, you know runs a lot of that. There are a couple teams where I think if he if he slots in with them, he looks really good. Indianapolis, the way they've run the last couple of years, though I wouldn't take him at 15. But you do run into that positional value issue because you don't know what you're going to get. I don't know what you're going to get from him in the passing game. Is he like Adrian Peterson light or very, very light, which uh, is just, you know, sorry, Adrian Peterson, but just a two down running back, which uh, doesn't have as much value these days. Um, So I think that is a major issue with Fournette. He doesn't fit a lot of teams that like to run a lot of zone. I don't think you're going to get the pass game value out of him. Whereas a Dalvin Cook, I think is a game changer with the ball in his hands. I think Christian McCaffrey can do it all, line up all over the place, create mismatches. Joe Mixon, take the off-field off, uh, off field out of it for a minute, uh, but he is just so good with the ball in his hands, receiving, running, can line up all over the place. And even guys like Alvin Kamara and Kareem Hunt probably have a lot more versatility than Leonard Fournette. So I don't want to be too down on him because I think his 2015 was really good, and he showed a lot more... A lot better footwork and agility than I expected. But that's the only year that I really saw. 2014 as a freshman, I thought he was pretty stiff. Last year, wasn't terribly impressed. He's a straight line, speed and power guy. And I just don't know how much value that is in the there, there is with that in the NFL. Yeah, I think you mentioned the person that I think of, which is Adrian Peterson, not in terms of a physical comp, but just in terms of positional value. We think of yes. someone like Adrian Peterson, probably one of the best running backs in a very, very long time. And look at what the Vikings were able to do while he was there in his prime. Not a whole hell of a lot. You know, it it wasn't until they got, you know, Teddy Bridgewater and a couple of other pieces and actually a really good defense with Zimmer that they were actually beginning to to make some noise and make it to the playoffs. So you could get a once in a generation talent and you still aren't going to make the playoffs. Yeah, it, it, it's a big factor. I think it's the the one guy who I think has bucked the trend is is Marshawn Lynch, but of course he was surrounded by, you know, a, an a, an elite quarterback and a great defense and all that. But I think you could argue that Lynch, you know, set the tone for that Seattle the Seattle offense and could overcome a, a poor offensive line. But that's my bigger issue with Fournette. I don't see him overcoming a poor offensive line. If you get him to the second level, he is dangerous. But getting to the second level behind a line that's not going to block well he's not going to create the same way a guy like Marshawn Lynch could create and that is absolutely risky you, you might see a Todd Gurley type of situation from a production standpoint in his first two years if you don't get him in the right situation all right so you're the GM that's what you said you'd like to be when you're when you're mock drafting stuff and we're taking the shackles of quarterbacks off of you you don't have to take a quarterback you're you're the the draft world is your oyster who are you taking at number two if you're John Lynch uh, and you've got those weird little elf ears and you're staring at your draft board. Uh, who are you picking at number two overall for the 49ers? First, I'm feeling good about this borderline lifetime contract that I just signed. But <laughs> I'll tell you what, I hate the number two pick right now. If I am San yeah. Francisco, I want to trade down so fast. And I, it's always kind of cliche, but I want to trade down more than ever in this draft because I just think it's one elite guy and then a bunch of question marks. I would lean Marshawn Lattimore, though. I, I don't think... I don't think that it's risky to take a cornerback at two. I think some people say you can't take corners that high. Um, it's a deep cornerback class, yes, and you can get some good guys in the second and third round. I think Lattimore shows the ability to do it all, play that scheme that San Francisco's implementing now, cover three, cover one. He could press. He could play off coverage. Moves extremely well, six foot plus. I think he has everything you're looking for in a corner. 
Uh, and then just as a fit compared to some of the other guys, as much as I love a Jonathan Allen, I really like Jamal Adams. I think some of the, those guys are a little redundant to some of the guys that the 49ers have on their roster. I think Lattimore fits a huge need, and I think he's the top corner and a guy that fits the scheme extremely well. Now I'm curious why you wouldn't want to go someone like a Derek Barnett, right? He's an edge player. Edge is premier position, and yes, he would be the second one off the board, but this is, again, another premier position. Another, He's the second person on the PFF big board. Uh, what made you go corner in a heavy cornerback class uh, and not necessarily something like Edge or maybe even one of the safeties? I'm probably going to slide Barnett down a touch. As, as much as his production was... Uh, so from a production standpoint, he was right there with Miles Garrett for three straight years. Just unbelievable on-field production, getting after the quarterback, pressuring the quarterback, and playing the run. The one concern with Barnett, I think when you're picking in the top five, you just want the athleticism to match up what, with what you're seeing on tape. So when Garrett goes to the combine and blows it up and looks like the athlete you expected, it just makes you feel a little bit more comfortable about that pick where production and athleticism match up. With Barnett, I think he's going to be a very good player. I don't know that he's going to be a great player. I'd rather take that potential to get a great player. I think he's going to be solid. I think he's going to be a productive player. He's going to be in the league a long time. Just not as comfortable probably taking him at two as I would be just maybe a few picks later where I think Lattimore and some of these other guys have more elite type of potential. And that's what's tough when you're trying to put together this linear draft board and you can't really take those exact factors into consideration. Am I doing who the best player is going to be, who have who has the most upside. A couple of these other guys, I think, just have a little bit more upside than Barnett. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Um, so I think that about does it for for the interview. Steve, It's it's been a pleasure having you on. Again, I appreciate the time you spent with us. Uh, go ahead and hit him with your Twitter handle uh, or anything else. Uh, it, w- before you do that, though, I'd like to talk about the PFF, uh, just draft guide in general. Um, if you haven't picked it up or you haven't, created an account and signed in there's a ton of data in here um, between the spiderweb charts and the advanced stats and the rankings uh, it's pretty phenomenal and i know how much work it takes to put something like that together so kudos to you and the staff uh and and yeah if you're listening right now definitely go to pro football focus and check that out yeah much appreciated there's definitely a lot of work that goes into it i think the end product ended up pretty well it's certainly a place where you can get uh, draft class information that you can't find anywhere else from you know who who picked up the most pressures to the outside shoulder of the left tackle in the entire draft class, you know, which wide receiver dropped the most passes, all of that fun stuff is all in there in the PFF draft pass. And then my Twitter handle at PFF underscore Steve, hit me up with your famous hot takes. Everybody. I want to hear all of them. Always a lot of fun at PFF underscore Steve. You're going to over under on the number of hot takes you get from better rivals listeners. I'm going to put it at like one and a half. Probably one and a half. That's a t- that's the type of uh, response I get from my podcast too. There's yeah. usually those two um, motivated people that really want to tweet at you. So I'm going I'm going right. over. I'm taking over that. Yeah, we we have uh, I think some some motivated listeners. I mean, we get at least like a handful of people, dozen people that that uh, tweet out call to action. So I mean, I'm sure we can muster up some hot takes for sure. Well, that's good. Yeah. This should be your call to action. Tweet me your hot takes. You're- yeah, I think that's going to be it. It's actually, so what's funny is I had started jotting down a couple, um, and last week it was drafturbate. Um, and so this, this week, uh, <laughs> it was going to, you know, drafturbate part two was the leader in the clubhouse, but I think now hot takes is, is going to be the one I think it is. So, uh, hopefully you'll get some of those, uh, those at mentions. And again, thanks again for coming on. It's been a blast, man. Yeah, guys, much appreciated. Thanks for having me. All right, David, we wrapped it up. Uh, Steve Palazzolo, see, third time's a charm. I got it again. Uh, On a roll. What, what, 
I know I'm on a roll. Uh, he's on fire. What were your <laughs> takeaways from what were your takeaways from that interview? Because I thought it was I thought it was a lot. We covered a lot of ground uh, and we definitely dug into to some of the prospects that we could potentially take or I guess preferably not take. Yeah, I think there's I mean, that was impressive for us to get through an interview and get like that much stuff in there and what probably like 35, 40 minutes or so like that was. Yeah, it was about yeah, it was about 40 minutes. It was pretty solid. I, I mean, I think the part of the conversation that that I found really interesting was the, the whole idea of, you know, positional value for quarterbacks and that risk of, of missing out on elite talent elsewhere and kind of where do you draw that line? I, I, I thought that conversation was really fascinating because it's tough. Um you know, we, we talk about positional value a lot. That's been a, a topic of conversation for us for, I think, I think several episodes now in a row and, and, and throughout free agency and everything. And uh, obviously quarterback is is very, I mean, it's number one on that list, but it's, it, there's a significant gap between quarterback and, and everything else, right? I mean, you know, you, you mentioned on, uh, during the interview, like the Adrian Peterson example, right? And this is uh, a generational running back in the NFL, like one of the best that we've seen in a long time. And, you know, what did that get his team? But you could even, you know, look at JJ Watt is an example, right? Like he is at a premier position, you know, is able to, to come off the edge. He was by far the most dominant player, defensive player, like in the league for several years in a row, right? Before he, you know, dealt with injuries last year and everything. Um, what did the text, right? How much did that elevate the team? Like quarterback is really the one position on your roster uh, that, that can take a team that otherwise may be very mediocre and, and really elevate them and, and get them to the playoffs. So I just found that whole conversation in, in kind of trying to figure out where you draw that line really interesting. Yeah, for me, honestly, it was the the little nugget about Trubisky being the most accurate when it came to, when it comes to ball location. Because you know that ball location is something that we look at all the time. And, and we I remember during some of the games where Gabbert was playing, we would have tweets on game days that were like a couple seconds apart where it was basically some permutation of ball location. Just repetitively, ball location, ball location, <laughs> ball location. Because Gabbert didn't have a lot often. And, and that's important. And I did actually really like Steve's way of approaching kind of accuracy and moving backwards because I do think that you kind of have a floor like you, you have to have a minimum bar that you cross for arm strength you, you can't have my arm strength and play in the nfl but once you meet a certain level of arm strength then you can do a lot as long as you have all the other components as long as you have the ability to be accurate as long as you have the mental processing in order to make you know the, the throws and reads you need to make and and so for me I probably would have leaned someone like, you know, a Watson or maybe even a Davis Webb later in the rounds as a quarterback. But in talking to Steve, it's really kind of changed my mind, to be honest with you, about what it is that I'm looking at, at the very least, the prospects in this year's draft specifically. And you know, I do think that accuracy is kind of a big deal. And, and I don't I think it is difficult or more difficult for a coaching staff to teach accuracy than it is to teach them how to put all the tools together or how to move through the progressions or put them through a system. Yeah. And we've seen, you know, some guys in the NFL improve their arm strength, whereas accuracy, it doesn't really happen all that much, right? Like, you know, one of the, one of the guys that we mentioned during the, the, the pod was uh, Jake Locker, right? And he was a guy that fit that kind of big arm, you know, you want to point at all the physical tools and everything there, but, but really, wasn't accurate, wasn't consistent. And, and everybody's like, oh, well, we're going to take those physical tools and add all the other, you know, more nuanced aspects of play that you'll get that with time. 
and, and I feel like those scenarios just so rarely work out. I would rather take a chance on, you know, you, you get the, you, most of these guys are 21, 22 years old. And uh, I would rather bank on somebody that has some of those more nuanced things, whether it's the accuracy or the ability to, you know, move well within the pocket under pressure. And, and some of those type of deals that I think are maybe a little bit more innate um, and and try to develop them in the weight room, right? Give them an NFL weight program. See if you can uh, increase that arm strength and at least above that threshold. Because, yeah, I think, like you mentioned, very much a threshold type of thing. Once you get above a certain level, you know, higher isn't necessarily better in, in that case. Like, you, you're not making significant improvements just because you have the strongest arm, you know, in, in a class. What did you think about his his pick at number two for Marshawn Lattimore? Do, do you think that that is if if the Niners were? I'll put it this way, and I know this is this is supposed to be a quarterback centric episode, but I think if we were to wrap up our thoughts, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, David, but if you can, if we wrapped up our thoughts about the quarterback position, I think we don't want one at, at two, and ideally, unless something ridiculous happens to the board. And unless someone like Trubisky is there at the top of the second round, which the likelihood of that happen <laughs> yeah. is, happening is low, but hey, you never know, yeah. right? Aaron Rodgers slipped all the way down to to the Packers, right? So you never know. But unless something like that happens, you, then we are. I think our position is that you you don't want to draft one at two. You pull the ripcord, and if you do get one, you get it sometime on day three or later. And, and it's just a developmental guy that you're hoping to bring along and maybe develops into a backup quarterback, yada, yada, yada. Um, and for me, that guy, just based on what we talked about, is is probably uh, Peterman. I think that's the guy for me that fits that mold. Um, and, but that's like a throwaway at that point. It's like hopefully he does something and maybe he doesn't. But I, would, would that kind of surmise where it is where we are with quarterbacks? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I would be OK just punting on quarterback completely if it came to it um just considering some of the other spots but yeah i think round five six seven is is kind of where i would be comfortable taking someone in this draft so let's get then to the the projection that he made which is you know marshawn Lattimore at at two overall do what did, what was your impression when he said that was it like oh yeah all right that's this first quarterback he's first cornerback off the board He's really going to help us out. He's really going to help to remake the defense. Or were you like giving me that puppy dog kind of, I don't know about that. So I I thought the point that he made um, in in regards to kind of looking for this combination of production and athleticism was something that I've been thinking about a lot because it's, I keep going back and forth. You know, I've really put edge and cornerback as kind of the two positions that I think should be the big focuses for, for the 49ers in this draft. And, and, And I think, it's they're very deep classes, but they also have some guys at the top that are very good. And with Barnett, it really is only one half. When I, when you're picking, I think you know if they stay at two, all this is is assuming they stay at two. Um, there, you're really looking for kind of that total package, right? Where you're looking for I want somebody that that showed the production in college, but also shows some of those kind of elite uh, athletic traits for their position. And you want that kind of combination of things when when you're picking that high. And so I think Lattimore makes a lot more sense in in that regard, where even though he was a little bit, he was kind of a one-year wonder, um, you know, only was a one-year starter there, but it was, it was a a lot of production, you know, in that one year. And and he really was very, very good last year at Ohio state. So compared to like a Derek Barnett, it was concerning when you look at some of his 
measurables, right? When you look at the combine performance, you look at his spark score, it was like, okay, he had a, he had a decent three cone, which kind of makes sense for his game where he's got, um, you know, a lot of bend is kind of the first thing that people point out with him. Uh, but, but the, the overall physical traits just aren't really there. And so I like that idea of, of trying to go for not only the guy that has the production, but the guy that has the elite athletic traits that high. And then, you know, later in the draft, I think is where you start to choose one, you know, those day two and day three picks, especially day three, I think you start making those, those are the guys you're looking for, right? I, I want either somebody that's, you know, the quote unquote football player, right? He's like the, uh, I guess a Borland type of player, right? Where everybody trashed on his measurables, but it was it was clear from a production standpoint that he had that element down. I think you're either looking for that or the guy with just the raw physical tools and hoping you can develop. You know, you, you need one side or the other to be really strong and hope that you can develop the other area a little bit. Yeah, you look at Lattimore's, um, his kind of past defense chart uh, in the PFF guide, and he pretty much ex- exclusively played on the defense's right side. Um, he's got one snap, or like one to two snaps, where he's like lined up on, on the defense's left. But yeah, he uh, he did not allow a whole hell of a lot. You look at his spider web, um, and pretty much the, I mean, he, he's ridiculous at this point. Yeah. Um, but you're right, he is kind of a one-year wonder, right? You look at his coverage grade, uh, was about forty nine point eight uh, last year. This year it was eighty six. So and that was on a, he, on a on a very limited number of snaps too. Should point out. So yeah. like in twenty fifteen, he he didn't play a whole. I don't think he really played much until no. toward the end of the season, if I remember correctly. Correct. He got in like playoffs or something like that for a little bit. And his comp is Desmond Trufant for the Atlanta Falcons. They've got uh, in case you're trying to imagine a player that he might play like it. That that's the comp that you've got here in the scouting report. So. Definitely an interesting decision. Definitely interesting, an interesting comp. But uh, overall, I thought uh, it was a lot of fun, and uh, I think that uh, that about does it. We're we're kind of taking down these questions. You know, the, the the questions that we went into this one talking about really should they be looking for a quarterback of the future in this draft, and it, probably not unless something ridiculous happens with the with the draft. And you know, what are the strengths and weaknesses of this draft? Uh, apparently, it's not quarterback. Um, <laughs> cross one off the list there a little bit yeah yeah exactly uh and so you know, in terms of a miles garrett direction where should they go again not not necessarily quarterback so you know it's it's an interesting it's an interesting breakdown for for quarterbacks this apparently is is if you've got one takeaway if you've got one takeaway uh this is not the year for quarterbacks nope yeah i mean this is uh i think kind of been our position going into it right we we didn't want yep. uh necessarily the kirk cousins trade to happen this year like uh, I, I think it makes sense from where they're at uh, with this roster and kind of in this rebuild that let's punt it. Let's punt it one more year. I think next year it makes a lot more sense to go after your quarterback of the future. All right. So the, the, the call to action has been set. It's been made. It is official. The call to action this week is hot takes, H-O-T-T-A-K-E-S. And you can tweet all of your hashtag hot takes to at PFF Steve. PFF underscore Steve. If you can't spell Steve, uh, you prob- that should probably be your hot take, quite frankly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It should, it, I cannot spell Steve. And, and, that, that's it. And, and, like, get out there. Get him, man. Like, he, you know, one and a half here. Like, come on. We, we got better listeners than that. Like, we, we, got, we can we do got more than guys, one and a half. Let's do it. Uh, that, that'll, that'll go out there and kind of blow up his feed. So we want to we wanna hit him with at least two and a half. Come on, man. How, how, I want double digits. Double digits for You want sure. double digits? We can All right. easily hit double digits. That's not a lot All of right. That's like, du- like less than 1% of you guys. 
I might, uh, I might actually go back to the front end of this and record a little snippet that talks about the call to action at the beginning in case people drop off near the end. Uh, first time in the history of call to actions, just so we can inflate our numbers uh, <laughs> to, to start hitting them with, with the hot takes. But uh, I think that about does it this week. Uh, we will have a show next week. We're going to record it a little early, so if any breaking news happens uh, Monday or Tuesday, we probably won't cover that. But it'll be the last episode before we start talking about some recommendations and what we've learned over the, the episodes that we've covered. Uh, you can always follow me at Better Rivals. Uh, David, where can they follow you? That's going to be at Newman NFL. All right, and thanks again for staying on till the very end. And as always, go Niners. Hey everybody, it's Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge. I host a podcast every week called The Verge Cast with my friends Paul Miller and Dieter Bone. We've got a rotating cast of characters from our entire site, which is about technology, how it impacts culture, and how that is all a big cycle that causes us to have a wide variety of feelings that you can listen to every Friday. We've done over 300 episodes in the six years since The Verge has been around, but you only need to listen to one, the latest one, to get caught up on everything in tech news. Vergecast is on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere else you listen to podcasts, check it out.